I think it's ultimately about political will, and it is about uh, breaking down barriers, whether they are regulatory or financial. The, the simple fact, David, is that it costs more to build, whether it's a modest single-family home, a condominium, or an apartment, than what most Vermonters who are making reasonable salaries, $60,000, $80,000 a year, can afford. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. From Brattleboro to Newport and beyond, a crisis is brewing in the Green Mountains. Housing, especially affordable housing, is desperately hard to find. Seven Days reports this week that, quote, to keep up with growing need, the state would have to build a minimum of 5,800 homes and apartments by 2025, and more than triple that to address the broader affordability crisis. Meanwhile, the overall growth of housing stock in Vermont has fallen in recent decades to one-third of what it was in the 1980s, close quote. To find out the causes and scope of the housing crisis and efforts to address it, I spoke to two leaders in the housing field. Gus Selig is the longtime executive director of the Vermont Housing and Conservation Board, and Elizabeth Bridgewater is executive director of the Wyndham and Windsor Housing Trust in Brattleboro. I began by asking Selig, what is driving Vermont's housing crisis? Uh, David, a, a number of things are driving it, and they are absolutely on point to say that overall Vermont is building less housing uh, than we did four decades ago and two decades ago, that it, it's gone down every decade. Um, some of that people may think is the fallout of the financial crisis of the um, of 2008, uh, which made it tougher to get housing financed, um, and particularly things like condominiums, uh, where the banks basically said, if you can't show us 50% pre-sales, we won't finance your projects. But I think the story of the need for affordable housing um, goes to several other uh, realities and trends. One of them uh, is that even though Vermont has not grown, household size has shrunk. Um, so if you went back to about 1990, we were probably about three people per house. Now we're closer to two. And that means you need more housing, even as the state has not had a lot of growth uh, to accommodate everybody. I think the other big trend that people uh, don't talk about a lot has been the growth of income inequality um, as a key factor in leaving folks behind. And then the realities of the current marketplace. And I think we saw this some after 9-11. I can't speak to specific numbers, but it doesn't take a lot of people coming to Vermont with a ton of money to have a big impact on the housing crisis. There was a story in the New York Times, uh, I think two summers ago now, as COVID first hit, about what was going on in Wynn Hall Vermont and people showing up with a ton of money, being able to buy property without, uh, as all cash buyers, sometimes buying stuff sight unseen. And we've heard those stories all throughout the state, but that's not just a Vermont problem. As I talk to people across Northern New England, uh, it's a problem all, it's been a problem all across the region. So I think all of those factors have ended up putting um, a point on the fact that people just, given what it costs to build, and, and now we add in 
uh, the increased cost of building materials, the labor shortage, all making housing much more expensive to build. And in recent re weeks, what we've seen is a real spike in interest rates that will also deepen the affordability crisis and make it harder to meet the goals that were laid out in that seven days story. I was struck, uh, Gus, by reading something out of the history of the Vermont Housing and Conservation Board. Um, this line jumped out at me. This is sort of explaining the reason for the founding of VHCB. Uh, it says, quote, the pace and pattern of development in Vermont in the mid-1980s was threatening historic settlement patterns and the rural character of the state. Housing prices were rapidly rising beyond the reach of Vermonters. Development pressure on the state's valuable agricultural and natural lands was escalating at a record pace, and historic properties in downtowns were being abandoned for suburban sprawl development, close quote. That sounds like it could be written about today. Has has anything improved since then? Um, well, what I would say to you is that we've made a public investment that today currently houses more than 14,000 households around the state or close to 14,000 households. And that those assets are, by, as a matter of state policy, permanently affordable, meaning that they are not subject to the speculative market and we've conserved hundreds of thousands of acres of land that are important to Vermont's sense of community and um, the ability of people to recreate on that land and in terms of climate mitigation and flood resilience. So we've done a lot of good things, but the economy itself and the fundamentals of the economy, what people earn and what it costs to build housing today are probably as bad or worse than they were in the late 1980s. And for people who don't know, can you explain what the Vermont Housing and Conservation Board is? When it was founded by Governor Kunin, it was quite a visionary entity uh, that became sort of a national model. So uh, tell people what it is. Uh, we're a quasi-public agency. Uh, we receive funds both from the General Assembly and we manage federal funds. Um, to both conserve um, land and to um, build affordable housing of all so sorts and to preserve affordable housing. And preservation, I should say, David, was a big part of our mission when we were founded because housing was so at risk all over the state. Um, and just as an example um, of that, uh, there were two projects in the state back in the 80s. One was in Moortown, not far from where you live. And one was up in Essex owned by the same developer and had been financed uh, by the federal government 100%. But under the rules of that program, he was allowed to go prepay his mortgage. And in Essex, what he did was for 100 households was to convert to market rate rentals and double the rents. And in Moortown, he converted to condominiums. And, um, and so the families in both those locations were displaced from their homes and from good schools and so on and so forth. And that really was a big part of the impetus for creating uh, the board back then and having a way in the face of what were then the Reagan cuts to both housing programs and the Land and Water Conservation Fund, um, for Vermont to intervene in the real estate market and to have a tool to help 
address those inequities and to and and to fill the gaps that the feds had left behind because they pulled out of they'd cut the land and water conservation fund under Reagan by 90% and eliminated the major housing programs the section 8 new construction and substantial rehab programs uh were cut were eliminated as part of the landscape so so we were created as a response to the federal vacuum along with the economic problems of the real estate market that Vermont was experiencing. And what was visionary, as I understand it, was this uh, linking land conservation, agricultural conservation, and housing, affordable housing. What are some of the flagship projects that VHCB is undertaking that people might recognize but might not know you were the hidden hand behind it? Well, um, you know, if you go back 30 some years, there was a big impetus that came out of the city of Burlington to save Northgate Apartments, which was a 336 unit um, rental complex built in the late 60s, early 70s under federal programs that were going to expire after 20 years. The affordability was going to expire after 20 years, not far from Lake Champlain, not well built housing, but with great market potential. Walk down Elm Street in Montpelier, the old Barrett block uh, uh, was a project that ultimately flooded in 91 that we rehabilitated. Um, cornerstone project in your home community of Waterbury, uh, where the senior center is, is a project that was, I think, revitalizing Waterbury's first project. And across the state, um, uh, literally the creation of um, Green River Reservoir State State Park as a state park happened because of the board. Agricultural lands that were up for speculative development and what was then called spaghetti lot development have been conserved and allowed for reinvestment in agriculture and for often uh, for the next generation to be able to afford to get on the farm. So all of that work came out of the creation of the board. And I think what was what was important about it was not back then people might have thought, and I can remember a conversation with Senator Gannett, that um, combining housing and conservation was antithetical, that they were both competing for the availability of land. And what Vermonters said was, these are really complementary. We want open space. We want to redevelop our downtowns. And these ideas really belong together. We need to figure out a mechanism to address both recreational needs, agricultural needs, but also housing development needs. In the current conversation about the crunch over affordable housing, and, and this conversation is being heard uh, from every business that's unable to get employees because they can't live afford to live nearby to first-time homeowner buyers who simply can't afford the price of getting into a starter home in Vermont. Um, many people talk about the problem, perhaps the unintended consequence of Act 250, uh, Vermont's land use law, and that it has now impeded um, affordable housing construction because there's numerous, essentially endless opportunities to challenge permits and construction projects. How do you answer that? Um, well, what I would say is that Vermont has always put a high premium on the ability of neighbors to have a say in what goes on in their neighborhood. Um, I'm going to take a little contrary view to what most people might say about Act 250, which is 
as I've experienced development challenges, most of them have happened as much and more in the local permitting process than in Act 250. Uh, that's not to say Act 250 can't be used um, to stop projects, but um, lots of our problem comes right at the local level uh, when the local planning board is trying to make decisions about whether to, to permit a project or not. Um, I think Act 250 takes the blame for all of that um, and certainly has been used on more than one occasion as part of that process. But often when neighbors are opposed to development, um, it is the local permitting, it is A&R permitting that often comes into play. Hmm. And, and I do think it is fair to say that it is a good, this is a good time and there are several pieces of legislation being considered right now to look at all of the permitting processes that we use and determine how to make it easier to get housing built and especially in those places that we want it to be. So one of the projects that, uh, one of the pieces of legislation that's being considered right now uh, would allow for uh, priority housing projects to be larger than they currently are. We've done a good job in Vermont of designating neighborhoods for growth. Um, you see that up at Cambrian Rise in Burlington. You see that with a new town center uh, in South Burlington. Um, and I think enlarging how many units can be built as part of priority housing projects, which is being considered by the legislature right now is, is one more piece of the puzzle. When we hear some of the numbers, uh, such as uh, I mentioned at the beginning, that um, you know we need a minimum of nearly 6,000 homes and apartments in the next few years, what do you think is the single most powerful way to jumpstart the affordable housing uh, you know the availability of affordable housing i won't say construction because it isn't necessarily new construction that we're talking about well i think it's ultimately about political will and it is about uh breaking down barriers whether they are regulatory or financial the, the simple fact david is that it costs more to build whether it's a modest single family home a condominium or an apartment than what most Vermonters who are making reasonable salaries, 60, 70, $80,000 a year can afford. It simply doesn't, the numbers simply don't cash flow whether you're looking to get a mortgage or whether you're gonna pay rent. And so it's gonna take uh, both, uh, the in, both public investment to bring the price down and it's also going to take, as you were just discussing, uh, less barriers in terms of our land use policies to get housing built. Um, I'm optimistic that a number of communities are now seeing this as such a problem that they're taking it on in a variety of different ways. And, you know, um, so the city of Montpelier just uh, I think approved a bond to buy land. And I think um, some of that is for recreation, but I know that they're talking about housing as well. Um, I was involved in a conversation with the chair of the Middlebury Select Board and Middlebury College about making of it land available for housing. And I think it's gonna take at the community level, uh, a willingness um, for a variety of people to make land available for housing 
And perhaps as we get infrastructure dollars into Vermont uh, that are coming through the infrastructure bill that did pass, um, prioritizing, for instance, water and sewer and sidewalk and road improvements for those neighborhoods may be another way to help address this issue. Um, Let me also ask about, you know, a new uh, feature of the housing landscape that didn't exist 30 years ago is Airbnb, uh, so-called short-term rentals. How has that exacerbated the current problem in Vermont? And, and how do you deal with it? Um, I don't ha- I, I don't know exactly the, the, the degree to which that's a problem. And um, so I don't have enough data to answer that question for you in a, in a comprehensive way. I think when you look at all the different factors of cost, supply chain and interruption, interest rates, NIMBYism, it's one more factor, um, I, but and it clearly makes housing, the availability of housing less than it was when you can Airbnb a property rather than rent it. Um, and how, how Vermont ought to regulate that or deal with that as an issue or tax it, I think is a is a good question for public debate. But I wouldn't I wouldn't point my fingers just at Airbnb as the sole source of our housing problems, but it, it, it certainly has added to it and made it more complex. We also have out-of-state capital coming in and looking for properties to buy and then jacking the rents up, and that's a national trend uh, as well. We're seeing, I don't think we've seen it yet here, but there's certainly, I think I saw a report, national news program uh, about investment companies buying single-family houses and converting them to rentals and therefore in suburbs of Atlanta and I think lots of other jurisdictions. And that kind of capital uh, will likely come to Vermont as well. We've certainly seen a few instances where not of single family homes, but of investors looking for properties to buy and to convert and then jack the rents up. So I I think that is another piece of our housing dilemma. Let me turn now to Elizabeth Bridgewater. You are uh, executive director of the Wyndham and Windsor Housing Trust. Um, Elizabeth, talk about, let's zoom in on one area, southeastern Vermont, where you are. Um, Talk about the situation there in terms of the dimensions of the housing challenge. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'd I'd like to build on some of the points that Gus made. We are seeing trends of -of out-of-state buyers in our region as well. I saw a report um, during the height of the pandemic that Southeastern Vermont actually had the most out-of-state buyer transactions than any other uh, location in Vermont. I think partly because of some of the ski areas and the proximity to locations in New York and Connecticut. Um, The other thing is that um, much of the rental property in Vermont is single family homes. There's outside of some of the um, housing trust properties that are multifamily, there's a lot of rental properties that are actually single family homes. So every time an out-of-state buyer buys a single family home, the potential is taking that off of the rental market. And whenever it's used for an Airbnb, it's also taking it off the rental market. Um, So that's a trend that's unique to, I think, our region. Um, We're also seeing rising rents. I'm I'm on a landlord uh, listserv and um, listen in on a lot of the chatter of the private landlords. And everybody right now is struggling with the idea of having to raise rents because of the rising fuel costs. 
So we're already seeing very high rents in our region. And then with the pressure of recent fuel increases, I think we're gonna really see um, that happening more and more in our region. And then the wages in our region are also um, fairly modest. Um, Gus talked about the equation between the cost of building housing and the, the incomes that people have to pay for rents and, and mortgages. At one point we did an analysis of the renters in our region and found that three fourths of all renters in our region qualify for affordable housing, whether they know it or not. So they may not think of themselves as a candidate for affordable housing, but their income suggests that they are a candidate for affordable housing and they need that resource in order to have a good balance of their household budget. So we just, um, that equation that we talk about is very much prevalent in our region. And I then wonder... finally, we're, we're becoming a welcoming community in Brattleboro, which is really exciting, welcoming incoming uh, folks from other countries that are experiencing violence and pressure in other locations. And, um, and I think that's a really wonderful trend. We've had an influx of Afghan refugees into Brattleboro in the last few months. And there, several of them are staying at the um, SIT campus or on a property at Winston Prouty because they just haven't been able to be absorbed into the private rental market. It's just such a challenge. We, we need more um, folks in our community to fill labor shortages and, and just add that diversity and vitalization to the community. But the housing barriers are making it really hard for new people to move into Vermont. So I think some, those are some of the trends that we're seeing in the communities that we serve. Talk about some of the solutions that uh, the Wyndham and Windsor Housing Trust is pursuing uh, in your area to address the housing crisis. Sure. So we're looking at um, increasing our production of multifamily housing. Um, we, with the support of VHCB, actually, we were able to increase our staff this year and add another developer on our staff. Um, we also brought in another consultant in order to help us um, move projects along faster through our pipeline. So we've got a very robust pipeline of new homes. We've got a project in Bellows Falls under construction right now. That'll be 27 new homes along the Connecticut River in the location of an old parking garage that we demolished and we're building on the footprint of that, um, of that old garage. It's in a really lovely location at the north uh, end of the village and it's been an abandoned uh, kind of neglected property for many, many years. And, um, and so not only will it provide new homes, but it'll go a long way of revitalizing that end of the village. So we're really excited about that project. We've got another project in Putney adjacent to the Putney Food Co-op right off of exit four that will result in 25 new apartments in two different buildings. Um, what's exciting about that project is that it's also on a parcel of land that's historically been used by the Putney Community Garden and the farmers market. And we're working in collaboration with them. We've subdivided the parcel and are planning to sell the piece of the parcel that they're currently residing on to, to them and then build the housing on the other part. So the idea of having food resources right outside the door of, of a new community is so exciting because we learned through the pandemic that food insecurity is a really big factor for people trying to make household budgets meet and balance. And so having the ability to walk right outside the door and have access to 
um, the Putney Food Co-op, a farmer's market, and then be able to grow food as part of a community garden. It's just a really exciting feature of, of that new community that we're building. I wonder if you could say a little more about the impact of the pandemic uh, on the housing crunch. Um, it, it's, you know, we have uh, these pandemic refugees, as I call them, people flocking from the cities and buying homes here. Um, what's happened in your area in that regard? Well, the, statistic, the, the trend that I described earlier of out-of-state buyers is real in our region. And that, you know, in speaking with one of the um, local bank, a presidents of one of the local community banks, he also noted that more than half of the transactions that they had in 2020 were from out-of-state buyers. Mm. So we just, people are flooding into the market. The, the pricing is going way up in our region. We, we have a home ownership program where we help first-time home buyers access capital and other resources to buy homes. We're seeing them losing in every single negotiation because we've got buyers from out of state with cash or just a significant amount of additional resources than a local person would have. Hmm. So that's been a real struggle. And I think um, what was interesting is we analyzed our numbers from last year, even though we actually saw a lower number of um, folks closing on new homes that we've helped, our market share within a certain price range actually went up. And so I think what that pointed out to us was how critical resources like the housing trust are for home buyers to get help in how to negotiate in a really tough real estate market. So while we're seeing the challenges, we're also seeing the value of the organization to individual buyers. And we're really proud of helping people maneuver through this this really challenging market. Um, on the rental side, we just, you know, people are really stressed out. We, we saw a rise in a lot of um, folks that had previously struggled with uh, mental health challenges got very amplified and, and um, folks that ha um, may have had addiction issues in the past that had, had subsided, you know, kind of got reactivated um, during the stress of being in isolation from the pandemic. So we've actually added three new staff members to our rental um, division just to help folks access resources and support um, so that they can get what they need as we come out of isolation and just access the resources that they need to, um, to really help, um, help with their well-being, their mental health well-being. And that's been really welcomed by our residents, this, this new resources that we put in place. Elizabeth, I wonder, uh, as we wrap up here, uh, what would be the single most, your single biggest need to expand affordable housing in your area? What would help you the most? Well, I <laughs> one, one answer, that's a challenging question to answer. I mean, there's a lot of resources floating around, right? And we're so grateful um, that our legislators and policymakers are directing funding towards housing. Um, I think the challenge that we're having is there's a, there's a narrow location of where housing can be built because of the lack of infrastructure. It's not probably the sexiest answer, but water and sewer is such a critical resource to help enable large scale development to happen. 
and um, and so I think you know to really put a shout out to the towns who have ARPA funds, and they're wondering how to use them. Now would be the time to invest in that type of infrastructure because that is going to have a long-term impact on our ability to solve this housing crisis over the next decades. That's been one of the huge barriers of building, and we're seeing folks from all of these small towns that are really ex excited about this opportunity that new money coming into Vermont has presented for them. And they'd like to utilize some of it and, and do housing in their town. And yet without the infrastructure in place, it, it's hard to do that on a large scale. So I, I, that's a pretty critical point to um, help move this, uh, move these solutions forward. Okay. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, I want to thank you both, Gus Seelig, uh, Executive Director of the Vermont Housing and Conservation Board, and Elizabeth Bridgewater, Executive Director of the Wyndham and Windsor Housing Trust. Thanks to both of you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, David. Have a good day.